1: John Copenhaver and Al Warren Heard on KCAA 106.5 FM Los Angeles 102.3 FM Riverside and 105.0 AM Palm Springs
0: The book is called Playing Dead A Memoir of Terror and Survival and so joining us is uh, Monique Faison-Ross Thank you for being here
3: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Al.
0: Wow, this is quite quite the book and quite the history. Um, what made you decide to write the book and come out with this? That's a good question. I,
3: I never wanted to write the book or to tell the story publicly. Very few people knew up until recently in the last few years, and it was friends, actually, that urged me to consider writing the book and telling the story that other people needed to know what happened and what you know um, intimate partner violence can look like and what it can escalate to.
0: Hmm. I, um. Wow. I don't know. Let's let's begin with your with your story. Can you maybe um, let the listeners know where it all started?
3: Okay. Um, I grew up as an only child in San Diego, and you know, was in high school and was active as a high school um, student, and met someone at a float meeting. I was going to be senior class president for the next year, and he was active, you know, in doing things that high school students like to do. And we were at a meeting at a float meeting about you know homecoming floats, and. We met. He pursued me a lot, actually, and he was dating someone. And so I, I felt like he came on too strong from the very beginning. I told my friends about it, but I really just kind of squelched those feelings and just thought, ah, it's fine. You know, I was 17 at the time. Actually, I was 16, 17. I think I was 16 at the time that we met. And, it progressed from there. And little things that happen, you really don't think are a big deal. You believe that you're making it up in your mind. You're kind of dismissing the behavior. Things progressed. I went off to college. He um, came to visit me a lot. I found myself pregnant, wanted to keep the baby, and I also wanted to have an intact family. I grew up in a single parent household. With my mom, and I really wanted my baby to have a family unit. And things just, little things happened. He'd explode, he didn't have control of his temper. Nothing distinctly violent until years later, after multiple children, we moved from San Diego, um, where we had both grown up, to um, Japan on an assignment with the military which I initiated. I wanted to move to Japan, and I loved it there. And then we moved back. Um, then we moved not back to San Diego, but we moved to Jacksonville, Florida. And I knew ultimately after so many years of marriage, it was a toxic and hostile marriage. But right before I finally decided to leave him but was waiting to get the money together to do that, uh, we had an escalated argument that he strangled me briefly and then let go and that was it for me and I said I'm definitely leaving but not at that moment I didn't tell him until later and I just knew that that was the final straw for me but but the unique thing about him and about us is yes we were young and married and had three children at the time but we looked like everyone else he appeared Normal, so to speak. He's well-dressed always. Um, ranks very high in the military. He was moving up the ranks. He was very respectful in public, very well-behaved, always wanted our children to be well-behaved. We appeared to be, you know, your average American family. And But underneath, there was always the tendency was there. It was kind of bubbling under the surface. Um
0: and well, were, were you scared of him in the, in, the, in the early days were you scared of him or did did it make you nervous around him like what how how bad was it at the beginning? that
3: yeah, I was not afraid of him, and that's the scary part is I didn't know how much in danger I was and how things escalated over the years. I didn't realize at the time that it was domestic. Abuse, not necessarily violent, that can escalate and lead to homicide. And I wasn't afraid of him. I thought he just had a lack of control. He was always angry or outbursts, or you know, I, I didn't. I wasn't fearful. Hmm.
0: What, what was there? One particular thing that caused a breaking point, or a certain time, or pressure that you noticed um for when he first assaulted you
3: with um it was all we we didn't have any money we Mm -hmm. were struggling so there were always financial arguments although they're common in marriage one of the top you know divorce reasons so we struggled like many people struggled and not having had either of us finishing our education we struggled even more And so there were always arguments surrounding money. Um, We just argued constantly about when we were leaving, if it was about what time we were leaving, about everything. But I desperately and wrongly, in retrospect, wanted to keep an intact family for my kids. And I, I just believed, you know, with therapy, we'd try therapy. Things would work for a little while. He made promises he could never keep. He would do better. If I didn't leave him, he would stop exploding if I didn't leave him. So the one thing you asked, what was the one thing? There were two incidences that were significant. One was um, when he said to me, you know, remember in an argument, remember OJ got away with it. And that hit me in the gut like someone had physically punched me in the stomach. And I think that that was my internal radar going off some kind of alert system saying he really means it. But Mm -hmm. for those of us who would not kill someone in cold blood, that's just, even though he said it, and even though it hit me oddly and strongly, I still did not believe that he was capable of murder. I mean, it's hard to fathom.
1: Did you have family members or or friends who, who were really, uh, um, didn't like him or felt felt uncomfortable around him, and and would tell you so even before you knew something was going on.
3: No, actually, no one um, said anything to me about his behavior being odd until I left him. When I when I separated from him, there was a couple that we had been friendly with, and I was alarmed that my friend, the the woman in the in the couple said that her husband felt that there was something not right with him and he didn't want her or her baby to be near us until we were legally divorced and he really had kept his distance. And I was really surprised by that. Later, after things happened, I talked to people who were in high school with us and they said, we always saw that there was something not quite right. You were the one who didn't see it. And they were right. I didn't know I was truly in lethal danger until it was too late, up until the last minute. I was trying to help him, you know, turn himself in to the police after I was kidnapped. You know, if I could go back, I would say always be concerned for your own safety and always assume the worst. I don't know if that's because I was married to him for almost 13 years. We had three children. I don't know why I didn't realize the danger I was in.
0: So so that whole time nobody else came to you and said anything then?
3: No. Wow. I think because he appeared, if you were to meet him today and you didn't know the story and you didn't talk to me, you would believe him. He's very believable. He's a sociopath. Most of them are very believable, very charming. He's convinced, I mean, he convinced people that he was a great dad and he he was a great dad in many ways. He attempted to be a good husband as I attempted to be a good wife. But we were toxic from the very beginning and should have never been married.
0: So how was it to leave him then? You said you you had had enough and you were going to leave him. How long did you have to prepare for that, and did you have to prepare because you were scared of what he might do?
3: No, I, you know, went after the strangulation situation, and the next day or two, I don't remember how long it took me exactly to say, that's it, I'm leaving, the kids and I are moving out, but because I didn't have the money or the savings, I needed to wait for my tax refund that year and when it came and i was biding my time just trying to keep the peace in the house he knew that that's what i was waiting for and i think it arrived I don't remember the exact date but probably towards the end of february beginning of march time frame and he knew and i think he at that time i think i believed that he had accepted that this was going to happen i was talking to him during that those times you know that we'll both be better parents we'll be able to co-parent And I thought, wrongly, that he had accepted that this was imminent. And he helped, you know, I I rented a U-Haul truck, and then he helped me load it. We decided what I was taking, what he was taking, and he asked that he keep some stuff for the kids because he, too, would be sharing custody. And so I thought, you know, maybe this is really going to work. He's come to the realization that we are, in fact... Um, have a hostile marriage so when I moved out everything seemed fine he helped me load the U-Haul truck and helped me unload it and asked me if I needed him to help me pa- unpack and I said no and things seemed to be semi-okay he made promises to help financially which he never came through with um, which caused me more problems down the road but he even talked to me he started dating someone and I thought oh this is great he was talking to me about it we could talk I thought we're going to have a good divorce the kids are going to be healthier in two separate households and he's going to be fine he's going to move on and all along we were talking about you know people he was dating but as I think about it and I go back that was all a ploy you know the promises of money the promise to help me um, the promises of of um, not the promises, but the talking to me about people he was dating, it was all to try and get me to be jealous or to want him back or to be desperate to go back by him not helping me, not coming through with any of the promises he made. And so ultimately, as time went on, there were several things that happened in between. Eventually, I met someone at work six months. This was six months later, and a lot happened in between that time, but I met someone who asked me out on a date. He, he happened to have the three kids. This was the first time he kept all three kids at the same time for one night. He usually didn't do that, and I wasn't suspicious of it at the time, because I wasn't seeing anybody. I didn't need my time. I just needed to be away from him and at peace in my own apartment, and I was, so I didn't mind that he didn't take all three kids, but that, too, was also to ensure that I didn't have any non-child time available to me. And so I went out on a date and told him about it the next day because why wouldn't I? I? You know, we had been discussing people he was dating. And from that moment on, things never, never went back or regained what normalcy I thought we had. He completely went off the rails.
1: Because he felt like you were moving on without him.
3: I guess so I'm you know I I think he saw me as property
1: mm-hmm.
3: that was never the type of marriage we had so I'm not sure where that disconnect was but you know someone in mental health explained to me um, once that me and his children were all, his entire identity and so by me leaving him and dating someone else threw him into a reality that he couldn't handle. So, you know, I never cared what, what he could handle or couldn't handle. He had been given years in the marriage and I gave it years in the marriage and his lack of ability to cope was not my problem, but he destroyed people's lives in the, you know, when he went off the rails, so many lives were destroyed. His parents lost every dime they had in savings, they lost their house, it was terrible.
0: So when you, when you say he went off the rails, was that instantly when you told him about your, the, the date you had? It was, it was instant. Mm.
3: He confronted the guy I was seeing, we worked at the same hospital, he confronted him that day he stalked us full-time for almost three months, full-time. And it never slowed down. Like, I felt like I couldn't catch my breath. But did I believe I was in danger of being murdered by him? No. I I just believed he was harassing me, harassing him. I averaged 10 911 phone calls a week. Even the police didn't believe that he was, seriously dangerous, that he was going to do anything um, dangerous to me or try and take my life.
0: Was he still seeing the kids and, 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 and having his turn with them and everything was going fine with them?
3: Well, during those three months of stalking, he was fighting me for full custody. So he... He really followed the blueprint of full domestic violence, which I didn't know at the time. He, um, he made sure that I could not support myself and the kids by never providing um, child support. Forget alimony, that wasn't even up for discussion, but any sort of child support. He was trying to turn the kids against me. He hired a high-powered attorney that his parents paid for to fight me for full custody, saying that I was unfit, that I needed um, supervised visitation, that he lied and said he had been the full-time caretaker of them, which was not the case. Um, So during all of that, he on top of that was stalking me and the guy that I was seeing at the time full-time. So he was fighting me for full custody. He was not providing any support then he started to do bizarre things like keeping pieces of the kids' belongings so for example our son's backpack or you no know, it was my oldest daughter's backpack or my son's um t-ball mitt and bat like little things to um i i don't know what the point of that was i never understood it i don't know if it was to force me to go out and buy other things it was it was some attempt at desperation of control and the less control he he could get the more outrageous he was and so two weeks into the stalking so two weeks just two weeks after I went on that date I had to file a temporary injunction for protection and so did um the guy I was seeing and then it became final later that month because the day he was served with that, he violated it. It was in his car. The police arrested him. He was arrested a couple of times. Each time the bond was raised with um, from wherever it was, and his parents continued to funnel money into the private attorney. And each time we appeared in court, he was very respectful to the judge, very well-dressed, very well-spoken. He always said, yes, Your Honor, no, Your Honor, I won't do it anymore, Your Honor, and he would leave court and pick up right back where he left off. Mm -hmm. And it just continued that way till eventually he caused me to lose my job. There were no, to my knowledge, workplace violence, um, you know, guidelines at that time. I don't know what he said to my supervisor, but I was in a probationary period and Off the record, she said to me, when all of this gets straightened out, we'd love to have you back, but in the meantime, we have to protect people here. We worry about you, but we have to protect people, which I understood. What could I say? Right. I don't know what he said to her. She never divulged that, but so he caused me to lose my job, so he he just ticked each box to ensure that I could not take care of my children during that time.
0: So when did it hit, hit? come to a point where, um, he, where he actually uh, decided to kidnap, cap, cap you? How long was that into the uh, um, separation?
3: Um, into the separation, it was nine months.
0: It was three months
3: into the stalking. So I think he was waiting for the opportunity, the right opportunity. I think that that was his plan all along. There were several different things he did um, throughout to to torment me he followed me constantly but that particular day that i was kidnapped the night before i for a change i hadn't called the police but the police caught him stalking and had led him he had led them in a high-speed chase and it was raining as it often does in florida you know off and on and they called off the high-speed chase came back to me out of breath, after running after him on foot. So at some point, he had jumped out of his vehicle that he had taken from me early in the stocking. He also took my mode of transportation. But, um, so he had two vehicles. One he had um, reported was stolen.
1: Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile whether it's for yourself or a loved one blue niles unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle blue niles experts are on hand to guide you and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30 percent at blue nile.com that's blue nile.com hey everyone
3: the police knew that that wasn't true he had hidden it actually and so the other car that he had he had taken from me three months earlier he jumped out and ran from them on foot so they impounded that car so i don't know if that caused him to have no other options he had no other way mode of transportation he had no other money with him whatever he had in the car at the time. He wasn't planning to be picked up at that time. He wasn't planning to be, you know, running on foot. So what happened when they ran to me and ran to my apartment and asked me where might he be, they told me they had chased him in the car chase and then chased him on foot. And did I have any idea where he might be? Of course I didn't. And I gave them his girlfriend's address at the time. She knew none of this was going on. She, I spoke to her after everything had happened, and she said she thought he was a little obsessed with the kids, but she had no idea that he was stalking me full time, that he was pursuing custody um, with only supervised visitation. She had no idea any of that was going on, so they went to her. She was, He was not there. The only thing that happened that I would have loved to have known is for the police to come back and tell me we didn't find him. That was the part that was missing because when they left me, I had no idea what was happening. I went back to bed, got the kids up the next Monday morning, ready for school. Two of The two youngest kids, um, my two youngest kids were with me at the time because my oldest, he had manipulated against me and she was staying with him for the last couple of weeks. So, my two youngest and I woke up like normal. I fixed their lunches, got dressed. I did grab pepper spray walking out the door because it had become a routine. And that morning, walking my kids to the car to drive them to school, he ran at me and kidnapped me. So, you know, I don't know that I would have done something different that morning if I had known they hadn't found him, but I. You know, it's hard to say. We can always second guess, you know, what would have happened. But um, so that's that's what precipitated the kidnapping, was him having no vehicles, the police looking for him in a manhunt, and him having little to no money, I presume.
0: Wow. But but when he um, kidnapped you, it wasn't just to have you drive him somewhere or to give you money.
3: Oh, no, 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 no. Nope. He um, he kidnapped me. My neighbor thankfully yelled to my children and said, "Don't listen to him," because he was screaming at them to get in the car. And they ran back upstairs to her. Thankfully, they didn't listen um, to him. But he he didn't have me drive him. He brought a, a, two different weapons, um, a gun and a uh, butcher knife, which I didn't know he had a butcher knife at the time. The gun he ended up dropping, and later I found out it was, it was not a real gun, but it looked like a real gun to me, someone not familiar, and seeing someone run at me. Um, so in my effort to stay out of the car, I fought with him to try and stay out of the car. He eventually picked me up on the passenger side where I was, put himself in next to me, Turned on the car, threw it into reverse. It was an automatic, not a stick. He would have had to be over there, and um, over in the driver's side, and took off immediately because he knew, with the neighbors seeing, it was a Monday morning, eight o'clock. The police were going to be there in moments, so he took off, um, and we went down into a, um, you know, a couple of different like a. a um, grocery store parking lot. We went through, flew through a bunch of areas, and then onto the main road. And he blew out a tire because he took off so fast and so hard with the car. And he moved over to the the driver's side. And he kept saying, I just, I just want to talk to you. I just want to talk to you. And so eventually, I'm thinking, okay, this, you know, he must mean he really wants to talk to me because again, murder is not in my frame of reference. And, um, so he spent about six hours with me, me trying to convince him to turn himself in, me convincing him to let me call a friend to get the kids because I was worried that child protective services would take them without either of us, you know, anywhere to be seen. And, um, so I did get a friend to get my children and, um, I just was convinced that he would stop this madness if he just talked to me. There were a couple other things that happened while I was kidnapped and I they didn't make sense to me. I just needed to get home to my children. I just kept saying I just need to get home to the kids. He kept asking me questions about my relationship um, with the other guy, about our marriage. You know, murder still was not on my mind. It wasn't until the last second that I realized it was
0: too late. So so he actually um, left you for dead. He actually uh, beat you uh, where he thought you were dead and left you in the woods.
3: Yeah. And he checked my pulse and he said out loud, you're not dead yet. And um, so I knew that he wanted me dead. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. Wow. So now... After this is all said and done, um, yeah, you're still you're still in uh, in fear and still living, um, uh, looking over your back.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. I'll never, until he dies, I'll never have peace. Well, I mean, he cannot contact me. Right. I have a lifetime injunction for protection, mm. forever, for as long mm. as I live. But. I had an injunction for protection at the time. So.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, well what, what, what happened with him legally? Was he uh, sent to prison?
3: He was. He was shot by the police and survived. How many people survived being shot by the police? Very few. If any, I can't even think of any. Um, he was in the hospital a long time. And then he went to prison. Uh, he plea bargained when I was able to repeat. You know, I was, I had the mind enough to be able to repeat what had happened and his attorney, even though he had, um, bled his parents dry of any money that they had, all of it, he convinced him to pre-bargain, which he did. He initially plea bargained for 26 years meeting in Florida at that time. I don't know if it's still the same. I think that it is, um, 26 years he needed to, um served eighty percent of that, which I think would have been about twenty twenty one years. but then, a few years into his sentence, he convinced a judge through a public defender at that time that he needed to be heard again, that he misunderstood his plea bargain, that he was misled or something he convinced the judge of and um, in lieu of that, I agreed to twenty year to reduce it to twenty years he'd have to serve 80%, which put him out. He got out of prison after 16 years. But I, you know, at the time he was pleading to have a new trial or whatever he was trying to get. I didn't want to take one child out of college and another out of high school at that time and um, upset my children's lives to go and see him in a courtroom and try and find witnesses. And many times I understand in plea bargains, they don't keep evidence. So, I felt I had no choice to keep our lives as peaceful as possible is to agree to 20 years and he would get out in 16 and he did. So I have not heard from him, but if I do directly or through a third party, he will go immediately back to prison.
0: Yeah. Uh, Have you had any, has he attempted anything or has he been around or have you heard anything?
3: I have not, no, not to my knowledge he's attempted anything. And he would be, I mean, that would be really unwise for him because, you know, I do monitor him because while I was kidnapped, um, he raped me a couple of times. And so he's a registered sex offender, which in a way is a gift to me because I can monitor his whereabouts. Um, So I know where he is and can see online that he was registered and doing what he's supposed to do. But they would snatch him up and send him back to prison in a minute if he contacts me or anyone. I still am in contact with um, my former attorney, who's now a judge. I'm in contact with the state district attorney, who was the former, uh, at the time, he was the assistant state attorney um, who prosecuted him for the state of Florida. So I still am in contact with all of those people, even the police that were involved. So
0: hmm.
3: it would be very unwise for him. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: uh, has he been able to see the kids, or do the kids still want to see him? Or?
3: They do not. They want nothing to do with him. Hmm. And he he has not reached out, to my knowledge. That's their choice. They're all adults well into adulthood. And he's never admitted what he did, never said, I'm sorry. So we don't discuss it, the kids and I. Um, I've never asked them not to see him or they made their own choices.
0: Right, right.
3: The loss, the the real loss is his family. His family are wonderful people. And I wish all these years they could have been involved in the kids' lives. But he's such a master manipulator the kids never felt comfortable being in contact with his family because he he would you know drill his family members for where they are what they're doing hmm So oh,
0: wow that way uh, So what do you hope people get out of your book what are you you know what is it that you want them to walk oh. away with? You know, I really,
3: that's a, such an important question, because my hope is that people will learn to follow their gut. Men and women, there are dangerous situations everywhere, from getting into an elevator, being in a parking garage, someone that shows up at the door, follow your gut. If I had followed my gut when I was 16, 17, you know, none of this would have happened, and um, if I had listen to my gut. I truly was in danger in the very beginning of that kidnapping and put my own feelings aside, and I should have never done that. I also hope that people will see um, and read what does sociopathic behavior look like? What are the danger signs? Because from the outside, all things seemed normal. But there were so many red flags that I should have picked up on his behavior was just bubbling under the surface all those years, and I didn't recognize it. That's what I hope that they get from it.
0: Mm. Now, do you have um, a website or do you have a site where people can go and find out more information about your books and anything else?
3: Yeah, um, I do. My It's a very long website name because it's my full name, MoniqueFaisonRoss.com, and there's information on there. Um, there's interesting things about what I'm doing. I'm uh, I was asked to be on the Fatality Review Task Force as a volunteer, which is not an easy job for the state of Connecticut, and I do that as the only survivor on the task force. It's a hard job, but I try and help provide all the professionals that I sit around the table with the insight of what it means to be the non-professional in day-to-day life, dealing with intimate partner, an intimate partner who's violent, but you don't recognize it. What caused me not to realize the danger that I was in. So there's a little bit about that. There's some blogs that I've written over the years and, um, books that I'm reading and, um, yeah. So hmm. I appreciate anyone willing to read the story. It's not an easy one. The second half of the book really has your heart racing from what I'm told by people, but there's a lot to be learned, I think.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. It's 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 a great book. We totally recommend it. Um Oh, I I Thank also you. forgot to mention you are the daughter of San Diego Charger football great Earl Faison, I guess, right?
3: Yeah. I am.
0: How did you your know. family deal with all of this?
3: Well, my parents were divorced when I was young. And um, my dad my dad and I were not as close as I would have liked. He's passed away now. Um, I miss him terribly. He was such a gentle giant, you know, just a sweetheart of a person. And I wish, you know we had grown closer over the years, but we certainly stayed in contact and spoke. He was devastated when he heard um, what had happened and he didn't come out right away. We didn't visit for some time, but we spoke a lot on the phone. He also spoke to the the man that helped me the day that I was rescued, because if it wasn't for him, I would not be here. I could have never gotten help on my own. And um, so my dad was, devastated and my mom flew out immediately and other family members flew to me immediately and but there was chaos at the hospital because you know he was shot and i was the trauma patient before him and we ended up at the same hospital and his you know both sets of family members come flying in from california it was kind of chaotic um for the hospital staff but um my dad you know, my dad, always the rational mind trying to, you know, in the beginning when he found out I was pregnant, he was the one who called the family meeting, he, he always tried to be rational and cool and calm. And he was. He was a calm man. Nothing like my um, husband at the time. So so he, yeah.
0: Hmm. yeah. How, and so everybody's doing, how is everyone doing now? How are the kids how are you? Um, how did life um, go for you guys now after all this yeah. is behind you?
3: Well, um, it's like it was yesterday. I mm. have four kids now, um, all adults from young adults to, you know, well into adulthood. My oldest daughter is married and has one child. So, but she was cautious in picking a mate. She was very careful, and all of my children are. They're a heightened sense of, you know, watching people and watching for signs. But other than that, everyone's well-educated and happy and living their lives and doing well. But we do look over our shoulder. We don't pick up the phone for calls we don't recognize. We don't go to the door and answer the door of people we don't expect to be coming. We all live a little more... Um, a lot more cautiously. And my PTSD is not about him. It's about dangers everywhere. It's about um, someone getting me. So I won't go into that. That's really yeah. a rabbit hole in and of itself. But I can tell you that trauma never leaves us. So it hasn't left my children and it hasn't left me.
0: Well. Well, um, we wish you all the best uh, and, and hope the future uh, continues uh, and gets nothing but better. Um, our, our, thank our, you. Our guest today has been uh, Monique Faison-Ross, and the book is Playing Dead. Um, thank you for being on the show.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks so much, Monique.
2: This has been a production of Something Weird Media. You've been listening to the House
1: of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows,
3: go to www.houseofmystery.com.
2: Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well,
1: yeah. Good night.